Well, good morning, Emmanuel, and welcome to our final week of our Politics 2020 series. Now, if I'm honest, this has been a series that I've been nervously excited for. You see, I've been nervous because it is a high task to, as a church, talk about politics as political divisions swirl around us and political discourse continues to divide in light of a quickly approaching election. It's a really high task to, as a teaching team, feel called to dive into scripture and to bring a word from the Lord that can shape our political discourse and how we respond in this season right now. And yet I'm also really excited because before I went to seminary, I worked in politics. And in particular, some of my absolute favorite years were spent on the campaign trail. Everything from local races to state Senate races to governor's races. I loved the camaraderie and the hard work and the exciting moments that happened on the campaign trail. You see, there was no week, though, that I loved more or that was more important to the campaign than election week. That was when the rubber met the road, when all the long hours and the phone calls and the press releases and the fundraisers were done. And there was just waiting and watching for election night results. And there was this one story that was infamously told during election week. It was actually told so often and on so many campaigns that I was on that it almost became like one of those campfire stories, right? One of those stories where the small details change over time. But it went a little something like this. On a presidential campaign, there was once a young staffer. And this staffer, he showed a lot of promise. In fact, he was so good at his job that it was all but guaranteed that if their candidate won, he was going to be one of the first people hired to be a part of the White House staff. And on election night, the staffer is at the election night party and they find out that their candidate won. And he says something like, man, I am so glad that our candidate won. I was actually so busy making phone calls today that I didn't even have a chance to vote. Well, the room falls silent. And I'm sure you're not surprised to find out that this unnamed promising campaign staffer didn't get to go to the White House staff. The moral of the story was clear, that voting really matters. And so ever since that story started being told, it was so terrifying to campaign staff that the first thing that we would do when we woke up was drive to our polling location and make sure we cast our ballot and make sure we got our I voted sticker. Now there's a lot more at stake in elections than just campaign staff jobs, of course. You see, at its most basic level, politics determines who gets what and how. Election day results determine a lot, including who gets health care and what's included in the health care and how much does it cost the individual and how much does it cost the public? What transportation options are available to a community? What roads are repaired and how are they repaired and when are they repaired? And what bus and rail options are added or available? Are there bike lanes and how wide are they? What does it cost to renew your license or register your car? What educational options are available to a community? 
And how much will teachers and administrators be paid? And are there vouchers available to choose different schools? And could I choose a school for a district I don't live in? And how big are class sizes? How much do I pray, pay for property taxes? And what's my home's value? And when can I water my lawn? Who decides when life begins? How many refugees or immigrants will we accept each year? And what will the process look like? And how much will it cost? What's considered criminal and what's not? What special projects get funded in my community like parks or nature centers or bike trails or cultural centers? You see, as Christians, we are called to care about these things. Because like Jason reminded us last week, scripture calls us to seek the welfare of the city in which we live. But here's something interesting. You see, even when we think about these issues through that Christian lens, through the lens of how important it is for us to care for our community, we still think about them from a partisan lens. Whatever party we grew up in or embrace or change to later in life, whatever politician we find more compelling, whatever platform we've chosen to follow, our brains hear these issues and we choose our side almost automatically without even having to really think about it. When I listed out all those issues that political elections determine, I'm guessing that your brain almost automatically filled in the blank with the position that you're most likely to embrace. When I said healthcare, your brain likely immediately went to healthcare for all or keep it privatized. When I said education, you probably went to school choice or more funding for public schools. When I said bike lanes, you went to yes, please in my city or please bike on the sidewalk. And I'm sure it doesn't surprise you to realize that even in the church, politics is often partisan. We tend to believe that the only option available for a faithful Christian to exercise their voting rights is to only vote Republican or to only vote Democrat or to not vote at all. But what if, what if there was a different way for Christians to live out their political engagements? What if instead of calling all Christians to be Republicans or all Christians to be Democrats, we actually called Christians to be faithful followers of Jesus, even in our politics? What if we were willing to be strange people who are so nuanced in our politics that our vote, it's not automatically given to one party or another, but it's anchored in scripture. What if we insisted on our vote being earned by politicians, not only by what they say or by what they promise, but also by how they act, by the character they exhibit and by the company that they keep? What if our ballot box decisions were made less according to partisanship and more according to biblical principles? You see, if you haven't already heard there's an election happening this November. If there's one thing that we've learned all throughout American history, it's that elections matter. But our witness and our conduct during elections as followers of Jesus, that matters too. So as Christians, 
how do we even begin to wrap our heads around what it looks like for us to be reoriented to scripture and to be followers of Jesus, even when it comes to how we cast our ballot. Well, the place we have to start is in understanding that there are no perfect politicians. In fact, the whole idea of a ruler over a nation, it's scripturally predicated on the idea that the person doing the ruling is not going to be perfect. In 1 Samuel 8, the people of God, they beg for a king because they want to be like all the other nations around them. And Samuel says that this will be the way of the king that rules over them. He says, this will be the ways of the king that will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive orchards and he will give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and he will give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and he will put them to work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. You see, the whole system of being ruled over starts with the promise that the person doing the ruling is going to be a broken person, engaging in a broken world in ways that are going to sometimes lead to more brokenness. And this is evident all throughout scripture. Almost every time that we see a ruler arise in scripture, we see the faults of their leadership. You see, Saul, Saul seemed perfect until he rejected God to pursue his own aims. You see, David, David seemed perfect until he abdicated his responsibility and misused his power. Rehoboam seemed perfect until he rejected wise counsel and he practiced his power punitively. But I want to be really clear here. I'm not saying this just to give our politicians a hall pass to do whatever they want. I'm saying this because we tend to think that the politician of our preferred party is perfect or that at the very least their conduct is excusable while the opposing politician is evil or crooked or just dumb. And yet, while there are no perfect politicians, scripture gives us good guidance about what we should look for when we look for good leaders. Michael Austin who's the president of the Evangelical Philosophical Society, he recently wrote an article where he said that there are minimum moral standards one must meet to exercise power responsibly. He said, we place great trust in the person who holds political office. Godly wisdom dictates that all who hold that office should be worthy of that trust. So what does scripture tell us about good leadership? Well, scripture teaches us that godly leaders, they're self-sacrificial and they're humble and they're honest and they're hardworking and they're peacemakers, that they believe in pursuing a cause bigger than just themselves, that they seek justice, that they're able to admit their faults 
seek forgiveness, and listen to God-honoring wisdom. You see, there are minimum qualifications that we should expect to see from our politicians when they seek our vote. We should expect them to be truthful, even when it's not politically expedient. We should expect them to be admirable, to be worthy of looking up to. We should expect them to be willing to listen to experts and advisors. And we should expect them to be trustworthy and to exercise their office faithfully. You see, scripture teaches us that to ignore a leader's character for the sake of expediency results in chaos. So as Christians, we should carefully examine the character of the people we vote for and those that they've chosen to surround themselves with. But for many of us, this becomes difficult and tricky. Like I said before, there are no perfect politicians. And so for many of us, our votes, they're gonna come down to platforms and political promises which leads us to this really important point. For Christians, there are overriding principles for our political engagement. Early in this series, we asked you to take a look at the book of Philippians, to consider the historical context and to take a look at the words that Paul writes to this church. You see, Philippians, in its most basic form, it boils down to one idea. The people of God are being called to conform their lives around Jesus. And in doing so, they participate in God's saving and redeeming work in the world as it is while they wait for the world to become what God has always intended it to be. So to put it another way, the Philippians are being called to live out the prayer that God's kingdom would be here on earth as it is in heaven. And in Philippians 2, Paul writes this to this church. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, there's any comfort from love, there's any participation in the spirit, if there's any affection and any sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. So if Christ's people are called to this, not only just for our sake, but for the sake of the world and our witness to it. And we had to boil this down into two principles for political engagement. The first would be this, God's people are called to unity. And this isn't some superficial partisan unity. But instead, scripture teaches us that Christians of all nations and contexts and backgrounds, and yes, even political parties are called to be united under some very important truths. The first is that God is a creator. And when God created, he placed his image in all people, which means that all people 
are worthy of honor and dignity and respect in life. That Jesus is Lord, which means that our ultimate allegiance, it's not to a political party or a politician, it's to be faithful to him and to follow him only. That scripture, that that's the only perfect rule for faith and doctrine and conduct, which means that we come to scripture to develop our political ideals rather than twisting scripture to fit what we already believe. Our belief that we should be people who are formed by scripture is what drives our understanding of what it means to live out our faith in the ways we act within our political world. It's why like we talked about in the beginning of this series, we see a really high bar for practicing civil disobedience and why we believe that we are called to respect our political leaders and the laws set before us, even if we disagree, unless there's a really, really, really compelling scripture-based reason to disobey. And it's why, like we talked about last week, we believe that we are called to pray for those in authority, even if, or maybe especially when, they're people we disagree with personally or politically. It's why, like we talked about in our Complicado series last fall, we believe that we have to honor the lives and the stories of refugees and immigrants, and that we have to support policies that do the same, even if we disagree on policy specifics. And it's why, like we'll talk about later this fall, we believe in a whole life pro-life ethic that protects the life and the dignity of everyone that's been made in God's image. You see, scripture leads us to unite around the understanding that our discipleship, it's displayed in how we treat the most vulnerable in our society. And among the reading that I did to prepare for this week, from theologians reflecting on politics from every party and every background and every context, they all cited one common passage of scripture that informed their politics. Matthew 25, where Jesus says this, when the son of man comes in all his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as shepherds separate the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And so God's people, they're called to unity 
but God's people are also called to humility. The way Philippians 2 puts it is that we are to count others as more significant than ourselves, looking not just to our interests, but also to the interests of others. And Jesus says that whatever we did to the least of these, we did to him. And so our vote, it's driven not only by the interests of ourselves and our household, but also to the interests of our neighbors and especially those who are most vulnerable in our society. The church, historically, has been at the forefront of caring for the most vulnerable. The church was at the forefront of creating schools, reforming prisons, advocating for the poor, and urging for the full rights of women in society. They were concerned with abuse and suffering and the results of addiction. They supported education efforts to provide upward mobility for new immigrants. Even when those realities seemed really radical to the times they lived in, because the church believed that scripture led them there, they engaged personally and politically in loving and serving their neighbor as themselves because they took Jesus's words seriously. And so when we enter the voting booth in November, or when you fill out your absentee ballot, our personal decision should be steeped in prayerful accountability. There's a reason why right now we're talking about how to vote and not who to vote for. I genuinely believe that with these principles and practical considerations in mind, faithful Christians with a desire to honor God and love their neighbor as themselves could come to different conclusions about who to vote for or whether to vote for certain offices at all. But our decision, it has to be prayerful. Between now and whenever you fill out your ballot, our decision of who we should vote for should begin with and end with prayer. Prayer that God would help us to see the candidates clearly. Avoiding either extreme of believing them to be perfect and thus ignoring character or leadership flaws or having such a low view that we don't expect good character or leadership from them. Prayer that we would adhere to the words of scripture before the words of political platforms and that scripture would actually drive our engagement. Prayer that God would illuminate the needs of our community so that we can be both principled and also practical. Prayer that God would guide whoever wins by surrounding them with wise lead leaders and advisors. Prayer that we would both see the importance of politics and yet understand our personal role and our responsibilities in our communities. And prayer that politics would be important but not ultimate in our lives. And at the same time that our decision is prayerful, it's also accountable. It's accountable to scripture. So between now and November, read scripture with an eye toward God's calling for our responsibility in our community, how we ought to care for those on the margins, how we should understand politics and our relationship with the state, God's words for those in leadership and the example of Christ who provided the ultimate example of what good, God-honoring, humble leadership looks like. Accountable to the Holy Spirit's leading. So as you pray, 
pray that the Spirit would lead you to truly vote in alignment with God's will, not yours or not your preferred parties, but God's will and accountable to our community. We should vote believing that our vote really does make a difference in how our society functions and how it impacts the lives of our neighbors. In the middle of this divisive political season, Mark Galley, who's the former editor of Christianity Today, he wrote some really good words that are really impactful for us now. He said this, the most serious problem we Christians face today is not idolatrous politics, surprising, right? That is a mere symptom of a deeper disorder, one that transcends left and right, mainline and evangelical, Catholic and Protestant. As I've written elsewhere and argue in my recent book, I believe what Alexander said about Americans in his 1983 Templeton Prize address applies specifically to Christians in America today. We have forgotten God. Some assume that I champion a retreat into a life of private devotion and thus a withdrawal from engagement. Far from it. But we too often step into the public square clumsily and we trip over our own moral ideals because we have forgotten our first love. We fail to recall that the one gift we have to offer to the nation is not a partisan vote, but a consistent moral voice grounded in the perfect love and perfect righteousness of God. To be sure, Christianity has much more to offer than this. For one, a life redeemed and shaped by Christ's self-sacrificing love. But striving for integrity in word and deed in the public square, that is the least we can do for the nation. And by itself, it is an unparalleled witness to the gospel we claim to live by. So imagine if in this political season and the next one and the next one and the next one after that, Christians were known for being more faithful to scripture than they were to a political party. Imagine if our loyalty to Jesus far surpassed our loyalty to a politician. Imagine if our votes and our advocacy were driven by our understanding of the value of each person and the principles that scripture draws us toward. Imagine if the church were more unified over what matters than they were divided. And if that unity was especially evident in how we treated those that we disagreed with politically. You see, there's a place that we go to as Christians all around the world, Christians of different languages, nations, cultures, and yes, even political parties that reminds us of the unity that we have in Christ. When we come to the Lord's table, the covenant book of worship tells us that we come not because we must, but because we may. Not to testify that we're righteous, but that we sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and we desire to be his true disciples. Not because we're strong, but because we're weak. Not because we have any claim on the grace of God, but because in our frailty and our sin, we stand in constant need of God's mercy and God's help. Not to express an opinion, but to seek God's presence and to pray for the spirit. And so we come this morning, 
to seek God's presence and to pray for his spirit, not just for the election, but for a whole life that's steeped in what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Here at Emmanuel, God's table is open to all who can sincerely pray the prayers that we're about to pray together. Scripture tells us what happened the night that the Lord's Supper was instituted by our God. It says, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so together as God's people, we pray this prayer. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. We confess that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We are not worthy for these gifts which we are about to receive, but say the word and we will be made clean. You see, the Lord, he also gave us a prayer to pray together, one that binds together Christians of different nations and traditions as one body as we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. We invite you now to make these prayers your own. And to whenever you're ready, receive the elements, whatever bread and juice you're using this morning as Christ's body broken for you and Christ's blood shed for you.